from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 8, King Kong vs. Godzilla. OG fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. And I'm Nathan Marchand. And in this episode, we will be covering the 1962 film King Kong vs. Godzilla. Which is nothing short of a blockbuster. This was the fourth highest grossing film of 1962, and to this day remains the most attended Godzilla film in Japan. Our topics for this episode are the Japanese economic miracle and the Ministry of International Trade and Industry. All right, let's get started with our description of the film. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is mostly a force of nature, but he also has some human-like behavior that complements the movie's lighter tone. He is more wandering around than angrily destroying everything he sees. King Kong, a.k.a. King Okongu, is worshipped as a god by the natives of Faroe Island. This isn't the Kong from the 1933 film, as this one is much larger and stronger and somehow derives strength from electricity. There's also the Udaku, or giant octopus, which Kong fights and defeats on Faroe. Mr. Taco is a buffoonish pharmaceutical executive looking for a way to promote his company and gain sponsors. His employees, Osamu Sakurai and Kinsaburo Furu, being good company men, do Taco's dirty work despite doubts in his harebrained schemes. They often disregard their boss in favor of common sense. Osamu's independent sister, Fumiko, dates a young engineer named Kazuo Fujita. Osamu, being an overprotective brother, disapproves of Fujita. The humans have jobs and lives unrelated to Godzilla and Kong, but like in Mothra, the human plotline mixes with the kaiju plot as the film progresses. Godzilla breaks through an ineffective JSDF perimeter. Once he reaches Japan, they lure him to a pit by igniting rivers laced with gasoline. They then detonate explosives to bury him under tons of earth, but he emerges unharmed. Godzilla is deterred by power lines erected around Tokyo. The military mostly ignores King Kong until he breaks through the power lines and stomps through Tokyo. Kong is tranquilized by the military using missiles filled with Soma. While Godzilla and Kong are fighting, they end up falling off a cliff into the ocean. King Kong swims away, apparently to return to Faroe Island, while it is assumed that Godzilla is still out there somewhere. Once again, Shinichi Sekizawa produced a simple but thematically rich script. Like with Mothra, he rewrote a different story that was given him. In this case, it was an American-made script where Kong fights Frankenstein, and it changed hands several times before being sold to Toho. With tokusatsu films hitting their stride, the film was given a big budget. Tsuburaya, who had wanted to make a Kong film since seeing the 1933 original as a child, was delighted to work on it, and his passion shows. He utilized his trademark suitmation, miniatures, and puppets, but he even included a few stop-motion shots, most notably one where Godzilla kicks Kong. Godzilla had his first major redesign, giving him a distinctly reptilian look. The Kong suit, unfortunately, looks much less impressive by comparison. This is a Sekizawa script, so the tone is light, satirical, and fun. 
The human plot lines feature most of the humor while the monster story is played more straight. Regardless, there are funny moments during the monster's epic final battle, including some intentional sumo wrestling parody. With this film, the series started to become more fantastical than realistic. While Godzilla Raids Again featured the series' first kaiju battle, this film's fights were bigger and more over the top. It would become the trademark of the Showa series. This was the first Godzilla film to have stronger doses of humor, satire, and lightheartedness, which is a marked change from the previous films. This film mostly reinforces the style established in Mothra, although this is the first time Sekizawa applied his formula to a Godzilla film. The film borrows heavily from the 1933 King Kong since much of the story around Kong mirrors the original classic. This film was made to celebrate Toho's 30th anniversary, and since the studio had long wanted to make a Kong film and was looking for a vehicle to bring Godzilla back to the screen, this was the perfect project to do all of those things. King Kong vs. Godzilla sold 11.2 million tickets in its initial theatrical run, making it the fourth highest grossing film of the year in Japan, and the highest grossing entry of the entire franchise. The American version grossed $2,725,000 when released in 1963. Over 50 years later, it remains popular with kaiju fans. While not altered as drastically as Gojira, or manhandled as badly as Godzilla Raids Again, the Americanized version of this film is quite different. The dub dialogue eliminates most of Sekizawa's humor. Most of Afukabe's score was deleted and replaced with stock music from Universal Films, including The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Several scenes were deleted while others were rearranged. In an odd move, the tidal wave sequence and the satellite shot from the Mysterians were added. The biggest change was the addition of scenes featuring an American TV reporter, an American paleontologist, and a Japanese news correspondent. These scenes create continuity errors, have subpar acting, and add nothing to the story other than little bits of clearer exposition. The film portrays a big pharmaceutical company looking to promote itself by any means possible, including exploitation and comically ridiculous schemes. This puts it at odds with the Japanese government and even its own workers. This conflict is seen in board meetings when Taco's employee suggests he do something more sensible, but he refuses to listen. This is a potent satire of commercialism, showcasing the extremes big companies will go to in order to get publicity and make a profit. It was a timely idea since Japan was in the midst of a huge economic boom. There are moments where characters feel powerless in the face of the kaiju, who could be said to represent the fury of the natural world. There's a sense that Japan's growing economic power could be destroyed by nature in an instant. Dr. Shigazawa states at the end that mankind must treat the environment more kindly. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is our opinion and discussion section. I really like this film. I don't know about you. What do you think? I think it's fantastic, actually. Uh, I remember the when I first discovered this back in the the you know the you know, ancient days of VHS. I found it. I think I found it at a Walmart, and I had no idea that this movie even existed. You know, this is back when I was still learning all the different titles of Godzilla movies. So the fact that you had Godzilla and King Kong in a movie together just seemed like a natural pairing. Little did I know that at this time, Godzilla was the new, or I guess you could say the nuclear kid on the block, and Got Kong was already the icon. It has a very important place in the in the entire series. I think this is one of those things that I think a lot of people would have wanted to see, and I, I think maybe when the first 
promos and and posters came out for for this movie, uh, I imagine people thought, oh, wow, what a really unique, cool idea, just because this kind of thing hadn't been done before. I think it's amazing how it's only the third Godzilla movie and we already have a parody. Yeah, (laughs) this might be one of the lightest scripts that Sekizawa ever wrote. Um, it's, It's a very potent satire, particularly of commercialism. Actually, one of the scenes that struck me the most about this was that was that early was that one early on when you had Osamu playing drums while he's filming a commercial. I think what was it? Was it for gum or something like that? Something small and silly. Yeah, it, it might have been. Yeah, and it was present the way it was being presented to you was like you were actually watching the finished commercial as they were filming it, and that actually I, I don't know if. Uh, Brian, if you've ever seen the original RoboCop from, I think it was 87, oh, yeah. but I was getting a very similar vibe from that one scene because the the original RoboCop was full of these kind of fake satirical commercials like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, like the sunscreen. Yeah, but it's this, <laughs> but this movie here, it's only one scene, unfortunately. Sometimes I kind of wish that they had continued that on, but I think it probably would have it would have drawn too much attention to itself and would have been too much of an interference with everything else that was going on. But it's just interesting that, you know, even though I'm separated by both time and culture with this movie, I still understood what makes this funny, this kind of goofy commercial for a goofy product that just gets thrown in here. I I still got it. That's, I think that's a testament to how good the satire is in that scene. Yeah, it's really smart. I think it's a very well, well thought out story and good script. I mean, I, I am partial to a lot of these Sekizawa films anyway, but this is definitely one of his best. Uh, the other thing I just want to throw this in here. The other thing that is good about this scene is it serves as a foreshadowing that Osamu is a drummer because that comes into play toward the end of the movie. And when they're trying to tranquilize Kong, which since this scene, unfortunately was deleted from the American version but they kept him playing drums in, in, in the American version. It seem, it it sets it up much better. It doesn't seem to come out of left field nearly as much. I think the berries were an interesting idea. It's like a non-addictive opiate. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, Kong essentially gets himself drunk off of the stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really kind of funny. You know, he grabs those giant, I don't know, those stone barrels of the stuff and just guzzles it, and then he just passes out. Yeah, but as far as like a, like a non-addictive opiate, I think we're, the world and uh, we'd really need something like that. Like, isn't that like the magic, you know, answer to everything? Like, wouldn't it be like the most sought-after berries ever? And wouldn't everybody start growing them? <laughs> yeah, you can bet. You know, no wonder that pharmaceutical company wanted to get their mitts on it. What are they called anyway? Soma berries? Soma. Snozberries? Uh, I, I don't know what those things are called. Yeah. <laughs> There's big red, big red berries in the jars, and it's like, okay, where'd you get these? And then they're like, oh well, by the way, there's a big monster that was protecting them. It's <laughs> like, oh, okay, uh. <laughs> I see. I think, but anyway, I think it's funny how the characters devise, you know, the Snozberry juice method to put King Kong to sleep when he's at the Dia building with Fumiko in his hand, and then Mr. Taco says that he'd do anything to make sure the King of Kongu is safe. I just I love that because it's like okay you don't care about the employee that that has the the his sister okay. in my, peril. My thought was okay this is a good plan, but did anyone ever stop and think 
if we tranqu- essentially tranquilize Kong that, I don't know, he might drop Fumiko and she would fall to her death? <laughs> yeah, it's not a very well thought out plan, but I don't know if they could really do very much. I mean, she gets to take the Fey Ray part and I guess she just gets to gets whatever they dish out. Uh, actually, now that I think about it, I guess the same could have been said about the original movie. I mean, those airplanes going after Kong, I mean, it's very possible she could have they could have shot Kong and he would drop her. <laughs> or they would have shot her in the process of firing at the building and him. And it's like, oh, oh well. Collateral damage. <laughs> One thing I liked was that 26 minutes into the Japanese version of the movie, one of the Americans in the helicopter says Gojira perfectly. And he's like, it's Gojira. And I'm like, wow, you nailed it. You totally nailed the pronunciation and it, it, it totally came off perfectly. Yeah, actually, the first time I ever heard that was I have a a couple of CDs that are kind of best of Godzilla soundtracks, and one was just for the Showa era, and they actually played some of the sound effects from it as well. And one of the sound effect tracks for King Kong vs. Godzilla was that guy yelling. He did a good job. Very exemplary. Which is more than I could say about a lot of the American actors in this movie. (laughs) Their acting is unimpressive to say the least it's no wonder they got dubbed over in the dub version yeah it makes sense the the submarine full of just subpar actors it gets destroyed although, by Godzilla. although the subtitle the japanese subtitles on the sides are kind of funny <laughs> yeah i really like what the subtitles look like when when the american speak it's i just really cool seeing them along the right side and it's like oh wow i love how they say there's going to be a movie too <laughs> And I'm like, wow, you're not, now you're being all meta, and it's only the third Godzilla movie. That cracked me up so much. And then Mr. Taco is the one that gets the illustrious uh, duty of saying the title, which is even better. He's like, you know, and they're sort of pondering, oh, what's going to happen? You know, what would happen if the two of them met? And he's like, King Kong versus Gojira. Hmm. <laughs> And then the scene just ends. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. So that just makes me that just makes me think. We have now said that there is a Godzilla movie in-universe for the Godzilla movie series. You don't get much more meta than that. I mean, I've seen that done a few other times. Like, I think there was an episode of the Ghostbusters cartoon where they said that there was a movie that was made based on them. And then what they did was they actually showed clips of the 1984 movie. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It was hilarious. I have to say... I think by far my favorite human character in this movie is Mr. Taco. And yes, you do say it like the food. The guy is hilarious. <laughs> Every scene he's in is comic gold. His expressions, his mannerisms, getting the newspapers and shredding them and throwing them up in the air in frustration. The thing with the... the uh, Oh, the, the, the detonator? De- yeah, the detonator. That is probably one of the most ironic moments in the entire movie because he's scuffling with the other two guys because they say, Kong's getting loose. We have to detonate the, the TNT. And he says, no, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. And then he accidentally falls on the detonator. But then nothing happens. <laughs> and then there's that, I think there's even a gif that got made out of that. But the part where he uh, gets all um, excited and then he sort of recoils away. I, the, yeah, it's I have one of the scenes that's on the boat, but he, it's just his expression is so perfect. Yeah, and even uh, his opening scene, you know, is, is just is just great. I mean, with this simple but very 
very humorous sort of you know comedy that's thrown in there. You know, he, you know, he the phone rings and he has to answer and he has, tells one of his employees to answer for him and he picks it up and he's talking in the wrong end and he has to turn it around and it's his boss and his boss overheard him say some of the things that he was saying to his employees and he starts berating him over the phone about it. <laughs> the part where he's talking about the bad ratings that this TV show has and then he says, this book is more interesting. I like that's great. Well, and what's funny is that he says our TV programs are boring. Well, and we actually do get to see some of the TV programs, and I actually agree with him. His he has like this really boring Japanese version of Bill Nye that just drones on and on about in front this, of a microphone with his paperwork and stuff. Yeah, pretty, when, uh, well, even though before that they were you know they were showing this this globe and they were had this deep foreboding voice talking about you know disembodied voice yeah disembodied voice talking about all these terrible things are going to happen then the guy just breaks in and says oh hi let's talk about earth science yeah and then he's (laughs) like oh the submarine here is investigating odd things by the way i'm like okay what does that have to do with anything (laughs) okay it's a convenient place for exposition is what it is (laughs) essentially with all the parody and the humor in this it's i think it's one of the better movies to when you're introducing someone else to godzilla this is probably one of those ones that would be a, a good one to introduce godzilla to somebody new with particularly if they're already familiar with the original king kong since there are a lot of parallels with this i mean we were just talking about mr taco and in a lot of ways mr taco is the carl denham of this movie you know he's the guy who's He's a much bit of a comical Carl. Denham, much more comical, way. and he, you know, but he's he's looking for publicity, and he hears the story about a monster out in the islands, and he's going to go find it, thinking he can get some, you know, make some money off of it, and and then in the end is kind of undone by his by his own hubris. Uh, he's a much more comical uh, character by comparison to Denim. He's very uh, animated. Yeah, but at the same time, he he doesn't have. Carl Denham's adventurousness. He gets a bit nervous. He sends other people to go look for the monster, and then when he kind of joins the expedition, you he can has tell a helicopter fly him down onto the yeah, boat. yeah, and you can tell he's out of his element, kind of a little over his head. But he doesn't want anyone to really know that. So he he you know he plays it like he's you know he in knows charge. what he's doing and he's in charge and things like that. Yeah, meanwhile he's actually probably at the at the whims of other forces such as Kong. That part where he uh, falls essentially onto the detonator and he and he lets out that cry and, and closes his eyes and, and that's just great too. <laughs> Who is that actor? Because he's wonderful in this movie as Taco. This is the only Godzilla film he appears to be in, but he's a really good actor. This film is notable for this being the first time the Godzilla suit received a massive redesign. In the two previous movies, they used essentially the same suit in the same design but in this one they changed it for the first time you know godzilla has i think three toes on each foot instead of four and the suit overall has a very distinct reptilian sort of look to it you know it doesn't have the ears and it's very sleek you know and you know it it really stands out from most of the other suits used in the series it's more fitting to comedy Eyes look different, I think, too. What do you think of the Kong suit in this, though? I know a lot of people complain about it. They think that the Kong suit looks really cheap by comparison to the Godzilla suit. I think the the King Kong suit looks cheap compared to the previous Kong 
movies. Maybe it was what it was. I, I was just I've heard some meta commentary given on this that you know, they wonder if the Godzilla suit was intentionally made to look really nice in the Kong suit, not so much as if it's supposed to be some sort of I don't know backhanded slap at Americans or something. I don't know. People don't love know. to read into this movie. I don't know. I don't really. I don't really get much of that. I think they feel like it was a big privilege to even be able to use Kong in a movie. And so I don't know why they'd then turn around and diss the character by making a you know subpar costume on purpose. Maybe they had to make it look like that and with that material just to have the, the suit actor look right or be able to move around in it or I don't know. Maybe it was something technical. Yeah, I have a feeling it had to be more something technical. Maybe it's just me, but it always seems like making a convincing gorilla suit has always been difficult no matter the era or the place where it's being made fur is harder than scales i would say if you're trying to do it from a special effects standpoint and it's also it's hard to outdo the original 33 king kong and how he looks because it looks pretty natural yeah most definitely actually speaking of the original king kong Eiji Tsuburaya actually got to live out one of his dreams with this. When not only is he getting to make a King Kong movie, which is something he always wanted to do, but he actually got to use a little bit of stop motion in this. And, you know, that was something he wanted to do in the original Gojira, but it was cost prohibitive. But in this one, he actually got to do a couple of shots. You know, the there's a couple scenes where the octopus grabs some of the natives, and I swear that looks like stop motion. But there is one shot during the climactic battle that is stop motion where Godzilla drop kicks Kong and he falls off, goes rolling down the mountain. Yeah, and that's stop motion, and it's like a, it's like they're doing a little nod to to the Harryhausen O'Brien method. Yeah, which is actually a nice little thing to see, and this seems like the most appropriate movie to use that in, since it is a King Kong film. The climactic battle in this, it's kind of a big deal in a lot of ways. I mean, you have. These two huge seminal monsters, two of the biggest in you know in all of moviedom, duking it out here. But it's also the first kaiju battle of its kind that we really see in the Godzilla series, and you know it's it's more over the top. It's a little more animated, a little more exaggerated compared to what we saw in Godzilla raids again. And this is the sort of style that we would see through the 60s and, you know, really the rest of the Showa era. Yeah, this set a big precedent for how the monster battles would take place. It makes me, like, this battle, it makes me feel more nostalgic for Godzilla Raids Again. And and it sort of puts Godzilla Raids Again in, in it's almost like its own category. That battle is so animalistic. We don't really get to see that again. This movie starts the more, like, it's more posturing and expressions, sort of almost human-like reactions to things. Yeah, this is the first time you really get some anthropomorphisms from Godzilla. You know, he shoots his atomic ray toward Kong and lights some trees on fire, and Kong jumps back, and, you know, there's it's very visible that Godzilla is gleeful over the fact that he, you know, he scared Kong like that. Yeah, he does this sort of thing where he's, like, clapping his hands almost. A few times when when he's doing uh, when he's getting away with some of the damage that he's doing to Kong, but but then you go to like 
scenes that it's just Godzilla in, and then it's back to force of nature. You know, he's just yeah marauding through. There isn't that human aspect. Instead, it's the the you know the old force of nature Godzilla back again. But then when whenever he's with Kong, it turns into this and like and just like you said, when he's he uses the atomic breath and then King Kong like jumps back and he's like, what the, you know, <laughs> but, but it's interesting that we, we're starting to get that a little bit of anthropomorphism starting to seep in. And there's even a little, a little bit of some intentional kind of sumo wrestling parody that's kind of put into this because the two monsters run at each other and they grapple and try to throw each other off balance, just like a sumo wrestler would. And, and actually I don't know about you, Brian, but a couple of my favorite moments of the battle actually are, uh, thanks to Kong, some of the tactics that he uses in this. One of them, one of them that I love, and it's actually become something of a meme on the internet, is where he uproots a tree and tries to stuff it down Godzilla's throat, and then jumps back, and then Godzilla blasts it out of his mouth with the atomic breath, and then the flaming tree hits Kong in the chest, and he just kind of puffs it out a little bit and gets angry. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of posturing. I get the impression, as opposed to Godzilla Raids again, now it's almost like it's two suit actors that are fighting and going at it instead of Godzilla and King Kong as, as much. Like you, you feel that there's another human level dynamic. And also, Kong must be a secret ninja or something because he judo flips Godzilla right after that. Yeah. <laughs> It's definitely a, a different kind of movie where you like with like with Mothra, we had the funny stuff happening in the human plot and no funny stuff happening really in the in the kaiju plot, which enhances the seriousness of the kaiju plot. But in this movie, we have humor in the human plot, especially with Mr. Taco. And then with the monster plot, we have a lot of parody to, and humor, too. One thing that I think has been remarked before about this movie is the sort of asymmetrical warfare between the two kaiju. Because when they battle, it ends up being a physical battle, but at the same time, if you can imagine the two of them together, Godzilla could just probably kill King Kong with the atomic breath and and just set him on fire and burn him to death. I mean, there's there's not like an even contest necessarily. I don't know. Maybe they were thinking that Kong was smarter or something. I think that might have been part of it. And actually, the the dub version really tries to hammer that home about how you know Godzilla is stupid and King Kong is a thinking animal. But I think oh, I that, think I remember that now. Yeah, I think that uh, that's one of those things from the Americanized version. I kind of like to forget. But the I think that's why they they make Kong larger, and he seems to be more durable than the original. King Kong. I mean, he can actually fight the military and handle him, handle himself pretty well. And also the fact that he can gain strength from electricity and also channel it through his fingertips. Because there's that scene yeah. in the climax when he gets struck by lightning and he gets his second wind and then he just goes over the Godzilla and just touches him and it shocks him and he yeah. jumps back and then he starts like, you yeah, know, it's like really trying to intim- power storage. Yeah, and then he starts, you know, trying to intimidate him, you know, trying to push him back and, you know, so I mean, they... Toho powered up Kong to go toe-to-toe with Godzilla. But yeah, I see what you mean. He still seems a little bit outmatched. Asymmetrical, yeah. 
One of the most interesting special effects sequences in this is when the giant octopus appears and terrorizes the islanders. What's cool about this is that that is a real octopus. It's not a puppet. It's not animated. It's a real octopus. They're on the Super I used four different octopuses to film that sequence and then you know, rotoscoped in all of the special effects. Now, there are some shots when the octopus meets Kong where it's a real octopus, but then they also used a fake one for when he picks it up and everything because, you know, animal rights and all of that, which is why, honestly, I don't think they would even attempt to do something like this again today because there would probably be people saying, like, what are you doing hurting the octopus, you know? And, but what's... Well, I think if you get a wrangler, then... And, you know, you always have that thing in the credits and no animals are harmed in the process of making this film. And as long as that's there, I think it, I think a lot of people will kind of give it give it a, an okay. Well, that's why the, the most interesting part of the story is also kind of one of the most ironic. Uh, three of the four octopuses that were used to film that sequence were set free back into the wild. And the fourth one became Subaraya's dinner. I mean, how many guys can say that they ate their special effects? This film also marks the first appearance, not in a tokusatsu film, but the first appearance of Mount Fuji in a Godzilla film. And usually when Mount Fuji is appearing in a Godzilla movie, it's kind of a big deal. You know, it serves as the climax between these, you know, these two iconic monsters. Mount Fuji is kind of a big deal in Japan. It probably has to do with its proximity to Tokyo, but also just the the presence. I mean, it's a very important location and really great to... They do some really amazing matte paintings of Mount Fuji that make it look quite real. And it's a good, it's a great backdrop for monster battle. A way to make it more epic. Something that I want to make sure that I, I let all of our listeners know is that we here at Kaiju Vision always focus primarily on the original Japanese versions of these films. And for the most part, you can find the Japanese versions available commercially here in the United States, you know, which is a great thing because for many years they weren't. King Kong vs. Godzilla is one of those rare exceptions. You can find the dubbed version, which, was, uh, which is owned by Universal, uh, available commercially, but you can't find the Japanese version. While with most of these movies the practice is to make both versions available on the same set to you. For whatever reason, that's never happened with this one. I don't know if it's because of rights issues or negligence or whatever the reason is for it. But if you, if you work at it, you can track down the Japanese version and watch it, which we do recommend. Yeah. Try and find it. I personally, I like the Japanese version better than the international slash American version. I would say overall it it is much better than the than the dub version. There's only a couple of things where I say the dub version did get it better. There's a, I think the for me it's the humor. And you know a lot of the humor in in the international version is just gone and it just seems like a documentary. And and it so just seems, this is it, just a little bit better. It just seems more like, like a humor. straightforward science fiction film really is what it is. I mean there's still some humor in it, you know, mostly involving Taco, but everything else is is just gone. Yeah. Something that uh, I want to bring up now, and I'll be bringing it up in some other episodes as we go, is that I've realized looking back on the Godzilla franchise that there have been points where Toho was ahead of the curve, way ahead of the curve, uh, when it came to certain trends that now Hollywood is going nuts over, particularly in the last 10 years. 
And one of those trends is nostalgia. It's hard to go to a movie theater nowadays and not see something that has some tie to something that we watched it growing up or whatever, whether it's an adaptation or a sequel or anything like that. And this was the first time that I feel like Toho was tapping into this. You know, they're making a King Kong movie. And, you know, you got to understand, this was back in the days when you didn't have home media. So the only way you could see another movie again is if it got re-released or if you caught it on television. So the fact that Toho is making a movie featuring King Kong, and King Kong was hugely popular when it was released in Japan in the the 1930s, suddenly you probably have all these people are thinking, oh, I saw King Kong... 30 years ago, and now they're making a new movie about him. I have to go see this now. And it goes along with the many releases of King Kong uh, that, that they did, sort of anniversary releases that pulled in a lot of money at the theaters. And it's like, oh, well, this movie, this is one of those movies that you actually can do that with, and a lot of people keep showing up for it. You think there might have been some of South Park's member berries kind of sitting there going, remember this when King Kong climbed the building? It's also probably why the movie was a big success in the United States as well. I think this is a different kind of nostalgia, like a more general kind of nostalgia. It's like, okay, we're bringing back King Kong and we're going to do all these things with him. And we're going to hit some of the same beats that that the original 33 film did. Yeah, but it wasn't like a formulaic J.J. Abrams thing where they bring in like, oh, okay, we're going to have this whole dynamic brought in. I don't know. I don't know how to describe how J.J. Abrams does this stuff, but I think you get what I mean. Like, like into darkness with the whole, you know, mirroring the lines that that they have, you know, and it's like, oh my gosh, you're going this far into the nostalgia, huh? Yeah. So what you're saying is, if J.J. Abrams somehow had directed this movie, he would have actually had Taco say something like, "It was Beauty Killed the Beast" uh-huh. or something like that. Goodness knows. <laughs> But it, I would not be surprised. I'll just say that. Yeah, and I, I see what you mean right here because, you know, as we mentioned, I think past ten years, it's like a, a big difference in, yeah. in how nostalgia is treated at the movie theaters. But yeah, like, but I, I was just I thinking, know. like you know, as we've mentioned, Taco is is serves as the kind of Carl Denham character in this, but he's not exactly like Carl Denham. He's not a movie director. He's not as adventurous. You know, There's he's a lot of more of a buffoon and stuff like, and stuff like that. But he serves in the same role. Yeah. But then there's just so many different things that are there that change that character into something. And like Denim wasn't in charge of a corporation or like there wasn't a corporate component that went along with that. So like, I think it's way different enough from Carl Denim that we get, that we get something that is on its own, that it can stand on its own. That's unique. The book that we looked at and it, it was, this, it was that same book that we talked about in the previous episodes that, that talked about how these monsters are like representative of countries. Like that book that said that wrote that Radon, AKA Rodan was representative of Russia. Yeah. But like that book also said in nearly that same paragraph about how King Kong versus Godzilla was a representation of the struggle between the East and the West. It I, seems like, it seems like a certainly a, a conclusion that you can draw, but I don't think it's an intended conclusion. It sounds like it's it just sounds like it's a conflated issue because I, I don't see any 
any indication in the film other than that it's King Kong versus Godzilla. Other than that, I do not see East versus West. I don't know if it's like, oh, the Japanese creation versus the American creation, and therefore it has to be... See, I don't see how it has to be that, though. I don't see how you can draw that conclusion that it's somehow East versus West just because it's these two creatures fighting each other. I wonder if that may have actually contributed to that long-standing urban legend that there was two endings to this movie. You know, you, you, I'm sure you've heard about that. You know, the I, I think, think I read it, it. Yeah, it got propagated by I think an American magazine that somehow thought that the ending that was in the dub version was filmed for the dub version because it looks like Kong wins because he's swimming out into the ocean and you don't see Godzilla. But the truth is, is that the endings are the same. Yeah, that's the only ending there is. Yeah, it's yeah. the only ending there is. And people started finding that out later on when they started getting the Japanese version and, and seeing it. The only difference is that in the dub version, you only hear Kong's roar, but in the original Japanese version, you hear both creatures roar. It's just that Kong is first. I wonder if you know if that may have contributed to so people thought, oh, in the Japanese version, Godzilla the Japanese monster wins, but then in the dub version, you know, King Kong wins to make the Americans happy or something. That'd be really heavy-handed. And it's like, oh, well, that would be really obvious then that it would be an East versus West setup. But I mean... The, other than that, it doesn't seem there is. There is some colonialism I- issues depicted in this film. Part of it is the system of values that, that is between the two cultures. But I, I'm not exactly sure how much to read into that because, again, this is, this is a callback to a film from 1933 that had natives in it. And that's why we have the natives in this. And it's also parody keep yeah, that it's in also mind very, as well yeah, it's a light film and so i'm not really sure how much seriousness we're supposed to attach to any depiction of colonialism but anyway uh the, i think the people who come out on the top of this between are sort of uh like in the previous films are like in mothra how there's a, a distinction between modern technological society and its shortfalls versus the nature worshiping society that is the, the natives and I think obviously the natives win in this movie, sort of, because, well, at least for a little while they get rid of King Kong. So I don't know, maybe they were having just this really big party, you know, while King Kong finally was gone. They didn't have to worship him anymore. Maybe yeah, I don't know what they were doing during this time, but they're yeah. like, well, he's, you know, destroying everything <laughs> in this other country that we don't really care about. But maybe since they got the radio then maybe they were listening <laughs> to the destruction on the radio that they were given. Uh, I like Although, to think, I don't know, I like there to wasn't think a they cord were... on it. Maybe the batteries died real quick. <laughs> I like, I'm just surprised they're able to get radio signals that far out, but yeah, it must be a heck of an I, antenna. I just like, I just like to think that, you know, they probably just drank some Soma berries and you know, Soma berry juice and listened to some sixties J pop and had a good time. <laughs> Hope the octopus wasn't going to come back. <laughs> yeah. Cause technically it does survive. <laughs> But if he's their god, though, do they do they want him back? I don't know. I think, to be honest, I mean, they don't really go into it as much as they did in the, the 33 film, but I get the impression that they're actually afraid of Kong. Seem to be. Yeah, and the fact that he would be gone, yeah, they, they probably appreciated that for a while. It's not like with Mothra, where Mothra is very much benevolent and seems to have some sort of relationship with her people you know because she has yeah, they don't the have two. to wall off mothra no they don't have to wall off mothra and she has the two fairies that more or less act as her priestesses 
to communicate to the people for her and you know they worship her because they revere her kong i think those natives really don't understand what they're dealing with and they worship him out of fear thinking that they could placate kong which is probably why they have the that berry juice handy the other thing that is with the natives we we're doing something that is part of the king kong universe traditionally and so you get i'm wondering how like it seems like the reference might be a little bit dated you know, like 1962 compared to 1933, we have 29 years separating these two movies. And a lot of stuff happened in between one and the other. So I don't know if it's like a, I guess some stuff is said about it, like the depiction of the natives might be a little bit racist, et cetera, or, or maybe that's just being a little bit too harsh. The, the Japanese creators of Godzilla, they, they, the thing is they finally got to have their own skull island, finally. And so I think maybe they thought, well, maybe this is dated, but dang it, we're still going to do it. And yeah, so I, I don't know. They probably did it because they, they all love the original movie, and they just said, we're having King Kong, we have to do something King Kong-esque, and this is how the natives were in that movie. Yeah, like, if you didn't have them, it really wouldn't, almost wouldn't be a Kong-related movie, would it? I mean, what are they going to do, just go to the island and there's nothing there, and then just Kong's hanging around? Yeah, I don't know. I suppose you could do it that way, but it would be much less interesting. Uh-huh. And there's also the, this is a big Toho scope, colorized extravaganza of a movie, you know? So, so you get that spectacle that, I mean, part of the big spectacle of this film is you get that big amount of people to, to be the natives and they get to do the, the yeah. dancing. And the, yeah. And, and the singing. And, and yeah. And so that engages the kids, you know, and, and it lets Honda continue to tap into his, you know, it's you know underlying love of musicals apparently because you know he keeps throwing in these musical numbers into these films. You know, I guess we could settle the the argument of you know is this a racist depiction of natives or not? I mean, we we could just ask the residents of Faroe Island and see if they think it is. But the thing is, <laughs> it's all a story, and neither they nor the island exist, and neither does Skull Island. There is no Skull Island. There is no Kong Island. You know. And, and so I'm not really exactly sure how that dynamic is going to work. I, the biggest evidence that I have for this film not being so serious, like what's the biggest indication? Well, for me, it, it was the helicopters and the balloons carrying King Kong to Mount Fuji. <laughs> that Looking at that image, it's like, oh, gee, maybe this movie isn't so serious. <laughs> so I don't know about the, the whole argument of the depiction of the natives. I'm not... I'm not going to be a sociologist and say, but it's like, okay, this is, this is very much a fantasy story that has extremely small basis in, in any kind of fact. So I'm not sure exactly how, how serious we're supposed to treat the rest of it. So Brian, what's interesting about this one is it's the only Showa era Godzilla film that we've had the privilege of seeing in a movie theater. Yeah. We saw it at the Pickwick at uh, G Fest and it was uh, really good. Yeah, it's unfortunate that they were showing the dubbed version of it, but still, I mean, we were we had the opportunity to see, you know, uh, to see this movie on the big screen with an audience of fans, which I think was probably the best part of the whole thing. I think watching these with the fans is really fun, and I think that also we definitely should have been able to see the Japanese version because I think the stuff that was inserted into this. American version or international version that people were laughing because of those inserts being so dumb 
And instead, we should be able to watch the Japanese version and be able to laugh at the stuff we're supposed to laugh at, like a lot of uh, humor with Mr. Taco that was deleted. Yeah, every time those American scenes were popping up, I kept th- I kept wanting to shake my fist at the screen and say, will you shut up and go away, please? Getting back to the comparison between this film and the previous Godzilla film, there were a lot of differences between that and this. Like we, we, We've gone seven years, but at the same time, we, we've covered a lot of economic growth from that time versus this one. You know, And it's almost like it's a different Japan. It's almost like a different movie industry. We're in Toho Scope. Things are less serious. It seems like the Japan in this movie is more comfortable and and like there's all this prosperity now and so it seems like we're in it almost like we're in a different era compared to the the first especially the first Godzilla film I feel like by this point Japan had been able to throw off the last major bits of vestige from the war and the occupation and it was they were as you said, they were more comfortable. I think they're more comfortable with themselves and more comfortable with their culture and and the changes that had occurred in the you know the two decades since the war. And that leads us in uh, to our related topic, which we'll be uh, taking on next. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast we discuss a topic that is either introduced or covered in the film itself or takes place at the time of the film was released. The issue for this episode is the Japanese economic miracle. And I think this movie has a lot more in it about economics uh, than it does about politics specifically. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I mean, as we mentioned in our discussion of the film, this is, a satire of commercialism, which was would have made this movie very timely. And there's a, a huge amount of time, comparatively, in between this Godzilla film and the last Godzilla film that we covered, because the last one was 1955. Yeah, so, so seven years. Yeah, there's a, and very crucial seven years that that we missed here, that we skipped between the Godzilla, specifically Godzilla films in the franchise. And so what we're talking about is a huge amount of economic prosperity and growth that has taken place and this is just the beginning of the Japanese economic miracle. Yeah, the the Japanese economic miracle is usually said to have started at right after World War II, but it was the 60s where it really came into full swing. In fact, most would say it really started to be felt in 1962, which was the year that the film was released. Yeah, specifically it's the golden 60s that that this era is referred to. But in, in reality, the Japanese economic miracle lasted all the way from about the time when this film was made all the way through about 1989-1990. We're talking about a very large part of the post-war era. Going back on the economic figures, in 1961, the economic growth was 12.04%. And then in 1962... The growth was 8.9% in one year. And so this is just huge economic growth that's taking place. And the GDP really isn't even all that high yet compared to what it's going to be by the time you get to the 1980s. And so you have a, a massive amount of prosperity, but you also have a big increase in the disposable income 
of the average Japanese person. And so suddenly all of this extra money starts coming in, the job market goes back. And so this is a really good time for when consumerism really makes its debut in Japan because during the empire, consumerism was not looked at as a very positive thing. And so you had people buying stuff like televisions and washing machines. There's all those kinds of uh, consumer goods that made life easier. And so this was a, a big change compared to the era during the war in which in which conspicuous consumption was considered a bad thing and an excessive. And now that has been totally changed. I don't know if anybody has seen the movie Good Morning from 1959 by Ozu, but it's uh, th- that's a big part of, of how it shows the change in Japanese society. People are buying washing machines and, and just all this other different stuff that really wasn't available uh, before. Think of it like this. From 1946 to 1976, the Japanese economy increased 55-fold, accounting for 10% of the world's economic activity, while Japan only occupied 0.3% of the world's surface area and accounted for 3% of the world's population. That is crazy. It is tremendous growth growth over a relatively short amount of time. I mean, this was unheard of. By the time 1968 came around, Japan had become the second largest economy in the world, passing Germany, and second only to the United States. And it was in that year, 1968, that the economy grew by 12.88%, which was the all-time high for one year of economic growth, which is really amazing. But it's not to say that Everybody was necessarily on board with this. In the early 60s, you know, around the time of this movie, there were a lot of Japanese economists who found it difficult to believe that there was such tremendous economic growth happening in Japan and usually wrote cautionary articles saying, uh, telling people not to get too invested in all of this, that it eventually it would burst and the boom would end and it would fail and, you know, that, you know, things wouldn't be what they were. But... They all got proven wrong, obviously, as time went on. On the other hand, Western economists were looking at what was happening in Japan, and they were praising it, and even holding Japan up as a model for, I guess, for you know, for you know, for economics, and so how you can spur an economy on and make tremendous change. And uh, as one uh, as one guy I read put it, they they praised it, saying. Uh, They were seeing expansion of demand, high productivity, competitively serene labor relations, and a very high rate of savings. Tremendously ironic that while Japanese economists were saying this won't last, the rest of the world was looking at it saying that this this is incredible. Just like West Germany, too. The West German economy grew by leaps and bounds, but Japan even ended up surpassing them. And so it's just a really incredible story that we see here. A lot of the biggest forces that were really driving this whole thing were the forces of globalization and westernization, in which uh, Japan became acclimated to everything new about the economy, and they had to find their own place uh, globally in markets, and so they had to figure out what products to concentrate on, and as far as, far as just what, what they think will make them successful. Because Japan realized that there were limits because of population, they realized that the light industrial goods 
like textiles are probably not the place to go. And so they ended up settling on value-added products that were that require a higher labor input. And so we're talking things like autos, steel, chemical goods, electronics, uh, measuring devices, precision measuring. And so there's um, that was the niche that the Japanese ended up going into, and they ended up being incredibly successful in, uh, in heavier industrial fields. As far as the explanation for the economic miracle, there are a number of different factors that all came together, and most of them were very favorable. And so, but there are different kinds of theories for which one of these was the most effective in generating the economic miracle. Yeah, the four primary theories about what brought this about are, are the national character explanation, the no miracle occurred analysis, the Uchiwa or all in the family economic system, and the free ride ex, uh, explanation. For the national character one, it's, it's saying that Japanese culture's tendency to emphasize the group over the individual made it possible for them to more easily agree with one another and maximize performance. The no miracle occurred analysis says that it was just a natural outgrowth of market forces and individuals and enterprises just responded to these markets and, you know, and, and utilized them. They were, you know, it just took the opportunity that was presented to them. A lot of it's also often called the anything but politics explanation because it minimizes the government's involvement in things. The Uchiwa uh, economic system is an interesting one because it talks about this thing called the three sacred treasures system which several things that make up, make up a large parts of Japanese industry and business, which includes lifetime employment, the seniority wage system, and enterprise unionism. And it's believed that these things account for the greater production time and value, as well as fewer missed days and fewer strikes, and greater innovation, better quality control, and greater labor commitment. In other words... Because all of these things are not getting into the way, the Japanese industry is able to produce more and to produce better things. And then the, the free ride explanation, I will admit when I first read this, seemed a little denigrating. But it's more or less saying that the Japanese economic miracle happened because of the alliance with the United States and not because of anything that Japan did. Because the alliance with the United States allowed them to spend less on defense uh, expenditures and it gave them ready access to major export markets and relatively cheap transfers of technology. Personally, reading all of this, I think it was, I really don't think it was any one of these things. I think it was really a combination of all of them. Wouldn't you say so, Brian? Yeah, and I don't know exactly how we can really take any of those out. They're, they're, I think each one of those uh, contributes its own part. During the occupation, Joseph Dodge was brought in, and he was the manager of the budget under Eisenhower. He figured out a way to try to stabilize the Japanese economy after all of the stresses that it had gone through, because after the war ended, there was a black market, massive inflation, and so things needed to be gotten under control as soon as possible. Some of the things that he suggested doing was to collect taxes in a better way, dissolving the Reconstruction Finance Bank because it just did not do loans correctly. He wanted to decrease the scope of government intervention. In other words, pull the government out of the free market and let the free market do its own work. 
Also, he wanted to change the exchange rate of the yen to the U.S. dollar. And so that would automatically you know, be a pegged currency exchange rate that would be permanent. He also wanted to balance the budget because that would help reduce inflation as well as getting all of these bad loans out, which also caused inflation. These things started working, but they didn't really start working until the Korean War when, uh, and the Cold War when all of these different economic forces started going into Japan and really juicing up the economy even more. Because during the Korean War, it was almost kind of like an economic stimulus package for Japan in an indirect way, just because there was all this American military spending that needed to be done, purchasing of Japanese-made goods in order to uh, help the war effort. And also Japan didn't have to pay for its own military. And so Japan got extra money in that form, too, in their budget, so they could spend it other places. Before the war, Japanese industry was heavily dominated by what was called the Zaibatsu, which were these family-controlled business conglomerates. And they had a tremendous grip on the, on the Japanese economy. But then during the occupation, Scap and MacArthur broke those up because of the, the amount of power that they held. Not, over, not, over, not just over the, the economy, but also over a lot of foreign policy. And because it was, it was another way of getting rid of the old guard in Japan in order to pave the way for a new democratized Japan. And then after the occupation ended, there were some monopoly controls that were loosened. And so then what we had was the Kiretsu. And these were basically the Zaibatsu coming back in a little bit of a different form. Instead of families in the Kiretsu, we ended up with different types of companies that all allied with each other in order to be a larger unit, sort of like strength in numbers and to protect against foreign takeovers and internal takeovers too. For like, for instance, the, there would be like a big bank that would be at the center of the Kiretsu and then they would have the funds. So like, if, for instance, in the Mitsubishi Kiretsu, there would be like the Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi. And then there would be a trust banking entity under that, like the Mitsubishi Trust and Banking. Then a life insurance company. Then a marine and fire insurance company. A trading company, a steel company, a chemical company, and sometimes a uh, trading or, or slash shipping company. And so it would be a group of companies all together like that, all working with each other, so it was more of a business thing than it was a family thing. In a lot of ways, it's very much a Japanese sort of idea, Emph you know, emphasizing the group over the individual, you know, and so banding together so that they can all survive, you know, all help each other, they can all survive, as opposed to all of these companies just working solely for their own ends. Also, these organizations are able to work in a free market for once now that the war is over because during the empire, the government and especially the military government controlled a whole lot of just anything that was business related in the country. And so these, these businesses, they really had to take their orders from the government instead of concentrating on what their best bottom line thing to do was. And so the government got in the way of trade and a lot of other things that they just uh, didn't have any control over anymore. The decision-making power wasn't very good. And so when the United States got rid of the military government, the businesses were initially pretty happy because they were at last under, you know, out from under the foot of the military 
government control. However, then the Zaibatsu got deleted and then labor laws came in and unions and I thought, oh, well, maybe this is a mixed bag. But then after the United States left, they ended up having a lot more uh, freedom as a result. But during the war, things got really bad for these companies because their assets in foreign countries were, were ended up being frozen. And then uh, the military had all of these companies doing work for them for the war effort. And so everything was very distorted as a result of uh, losing control to the national government and the military. Okay, so let's go back to the fixed exchange rate. You know, when you have a certain number of yen equaling a dollar, that, that means what? It means that the exchange rate isn't floating, and so the value of the yen doesn't change over time. Instead, it's kept in one place, and it's pegged artificially low, so that what? So they can export as much as they can. Because why? It makes their products cheap on a per dollar basis. So then that is what helped propel the export market forward because their goods were comparatively cheap and so they would be able to export a lot. That was the purpose of, of having a fixed exchange rate. It wasn't until 1971 that Japan actually enacted a floating exchange rate for the yen to the U.S. dollar. So it was in effect for the entire period of the golden 60s for sure. It would be impossible to mention the Japanese economic miracle without mentioning the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, or the MITI, or M-I-T-I. We ran into plenty of information saying that the MITI obviously wasn't some sort of magic organization that did everything for the economic miracle, but it definitely uh, played a pretty big part in it. And what it did was it controlled economic policies, and especially trade, and also what it did was is it allocated resources to industries that it favored in order to even boost exports even more. And, and so it also had a lot of control over the foreign exchange. They were really restrictive about trade, and they were uh, protectionist of all of the newly regrowing industries in Japan during Reconstruction and, and uh, after the war. So this meant restricting imports, a lot of it, in order to protect industries that were trying to get their products sold inside as well as be able to export out. And so the, this, was, uh, this definitely falls under the category of protectionism. MIDI was able to give money to the private sector and to businesses that it certainly wanted to protect by using the Japan Development Bank. And this included the Fiscal Investment and Loan Plan, which was a massive pooling of money from individual and national savings, and believe it or not, at one point, controlled four times as much money as the world's largest national bank. I don't know what that number would have been, but I'm sure it had to have been gigantic. Yeah, so these companies were incubated, kind of, by all of these policies. They were propped up by cheap loans, were able to see these companies grow and flourish to the point where then, then only later on would the protectionism start to, to key down a bit. This was done through a policy that was called overloaning, which is it's a very interesting sort of thing. You had the Bank of Japan that would loan money to the city banks, and then the city banks would then in turn loan money to business conglomerates. 
Well, what ended up happening was the business conglomerates would overborrow the money that they needed, not being able to pay it back from the city banks, who in turn, the city banks would then borrow more money than they could pay back from the Bank of Japan. And this essentially gave the Bank of Japan a lot of control and power over everything that was underneath them. It's an interesting little system. On the other hand, this did help foster diverse investments and close relationships with all of those who were involved. And this was important because there was a capital shortage at the time, because there was a lot of money that was needed in order to invest in the growth of all of these companies and in the economy growing again. And so you had to create as much capital as you possibly could in order to loan it out. And some industries even borrowed more money than the actual net worth of their company. And so under this rubric, you have a huge amount of investment, plus you have the MITI that is encouraging more cooperation between the government being able to fund these companies. And so what you have is a massive increase of productivity of a worker. You know, a worker can produce way, way more than before. Currently, the United States is definitely one of the most productive countries as far as just the amount of work that one person is able to do. But uh, Japan is pretty high up there, too, in just how much work one human being can actually do in a day. And that, of course, increases the productivity of the entire economy. By 1952, the consumer economy has started to bounce back. And so that was another layer of juice that was given to the economy once they started creating all these appliances and home goods and consumer goods. And so that that juice in the economy started increasing even more uh, the power of the growth and the speed of the growth that occurred. On top of that, the government spent a huge amount of money on infrastructure. Uh, Like new buildings and subways and airports, all kinds of things like that, Uh, railroads as well. And they also invested in communications, which had been largely neglected for many years before that. And this helped to take Japan closer to what's called a mixed economic model. And on top of that, there was uh, the prime minister during this time as Prime Minister Ikeda. And what he did was he uh, and the government lowered taxes and interest rates. And so they were able to free up even more money to be able to be spent on all of these different projects and uh, investments. It was a rather ambitious plan, too. I mean, he pretty much committed to doubling the incomes of Japanese people in, what, a decade? Something like that? Yeah, the income doubling model, which, I mean, that's, uh, that'd be great if we had that right now. We would just double everybody's income in 10 years. I mean, it's not something that very many politicians actually make a promise of. And that actually did be, that actually was fulfilled. This is kind of a segue into trade liberalization and and the work towards free trade because initially the MITI greatly reduced the ability of of imports to come into the country. But Prime Minister Ikeda and the administration, they wanted to see the trade more liberalized in Japan. Trade liberalization is basically where you reduce government controls on trade and you don't try to shut out goods from one country into your own country. And Ikeda's plan was to increase the amount of liberalized imports that were coming into Japan. In 1960, it was at about 41%, and his goal was to take it up to 80% in about three years. 
And that kind of gets into another term, which is market penetration, which is the ability of a foreign country's goods to penetrate into the market of another country. And when, you know, this works really both ways. And I guess the Japanese, some of them were not very uh, happy about trade liberalization. They were worried about the influx of foreign made goods into their country, which I think a lot of countries have that uh, experience where it seems like everything that's coming into your country is uh, are foreign goods. And it's like, okay, do we, you know, we need to buy our own goods, you know, make our own goods in order to increase our own economy. Trade liberalization, I guess, by some nationalists in Japan was likened to the second coming of the black ships. The idea that all these foreign made goods are coming in and then also the possibility of uh, foreign companies buying companies in Japan. And so that's an, that's a, another way of penetrating into Japan's market from the outside. And so Ikeda's administration, they had the income doubling plan as a way to kind of say, okay, we understand your concerns about trade liberalization and you shouldn't be as worried about it. In the end, he got the last laugh because by the time he left office, Japan's GNP was growing at an astonishing 13.9%. There is generally a lack of special interest group influence on the government as well during this period. And also there was a, a less amount of government intervention in business to begin with. And this, at, at the beginning, was easy. And what, But what happened over time was special companies and special interests, and they become kind of a partner along with the government. And, and that can be a good thing or it can also be rather bad because you end up having companies that are, I don't know, the way we would maybe describe that now is like too big to fail. You know, companies that it's in the national interest to have, but they lose money if they don't get bailout funds or, or regular help from the government in order to keep surviving. And instead, back then, it was more that, you know, you have com companies that need to survive, but you sort of just let it go and you let the market dictate those things instead of the government intervening and saying, no, this needs to stay up. This needs to stay up, but we'll let that go down. You know, that kind of picking the winners and losers in, in the business world. But low taxes and a lack of government intervention, those two things were a big force behind the economic miracle. The lower taxes also helped people to be able to save money. And so then in turn, they were able to spend more, but especially importantly, they were able to invest more. Starting in about the 70s and 80s, the MIDI kind of changed because they were less about protecting industries at home and they were actually working to help set up industries, foreign industries, in Japan's economy, which is uh, definitely a, a change over protectionism. That's uh, in large part due to the fact that as time went on, MIDI's control over the Japanese economy was slowly lessening and they were becoming more open to the idea of helping foreign corporations establish themselves in Japan in order to use them to spur Japan's economy along. It was finally in 1979 that MITI lost its control over the allocation of foreign currency, which that is, they got they had the actual power to decide who could import technologies and who couldn't, which that's an, that's an amazing amount of power. And that was uh, finally raised in 1979. It was eventually folded into a larger body, and it was reorganized into the Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, or the METI, M-E-T-I. Uh, that was in 2001, I believe. 
I think as we've shown, I mean, even though there are four different theories about what brought about the Japanese economic miracle, I think it's, as we've shown, it's it's safe to say that it's really bits of all of them that came together. When you have all of these positive forces working together, it's creates, you know, really the perfect environment for all of these things to come together and bring about the, you know, the tremendous amount of growth, this unprecedented amount of growth that happened to Japan in uh, during this particular era. I mean, is it any wonder then why the 60s in particular are considered to be the, you know, the peak time for tokusatsu films? I mean, there was plenty of money to go around, so that's all, you know, that's a, probably a big factor of why, you know, the the spectacle and the budgets and everything were so high during this era. And that gets us to how all of this economic growth changed Japanese society. As I said, we went from a very serious film like Godzilla raids again, you know, pretty, pretty straightforward, serious movie. And then the third Godzilla movie in the series ends up being a parody, which I think is fantastic. You know, there's just, it really shows a shifting attitude. Yeah. And it shows that, things weren't as serious. I mean, what do people do when they have extra money? I mean, they're not unhappy, right? They, they go and, and they spend the money on things that are going to make their lives easier, and they don't have to worry so much, right? Yeah, they spend money on having a good time, is really what it was. You know, and that's... It, it, but it also feeds into the fact that this, you know, this is a, a a satire of commercialism. So it's using the things that were going on at this point, you know, the the boom in industry and commercialism and you know television. You know, that is why that scene, you know, with the you know the one guy filming the commercial for the I think it was gum with the drums. It it would have it resounds because people would be familiar with that. You know, they're getting bombarded with all of these things because you know, everything is just changing at such a rapid rate and growing at such a rapid rate. Yeah, and we have the increase in television purchase at the, at this time too. Everybody was buying TVs for the first time. And so that's why part of this movie, you know, it's it's like a it's a parody of Really television. everything. Yeah, it's really it's everything that's just going on at that time. You know, that Mr. Taco is, you know, he's a company executive, you know, and he's being presented in this kind of satirical lens because this was the sort of thing that was, you know, that was going on. You know, I'm sure for some people who had doubts about what was, you know, about whether or not it would last, would probably look at that and say, like, see, this is an illustration of what's going on. Some of them are looking at it so like, this is representative of what's going on in Japan at this moment, you know, with all of these companies growing and expanding. Yeah, and all this change. Yeah. Yeah, like Mr. Taco is concerned about what? He's concerned about advertising. Advertising, And yep. getting getting his pharmaceutical company name out and saying, oh, well, this, this show's terrible because it doesn't, it's boring. It doesn't engage anybody. And so we got to, we got to figure out something better. And everybody's always trying to find something better in the world of advertising. And so he's like, okay, King Kong, let's do that. Also, isn't, isn't King Kong essentially like the company's mascot for a very short time? Yeah, he pretty much is. I mean, it, I I don't know if you necessarily want to take credit for your mascot roaming the Japanese countryside and terrorizing people and destroying property, but at least the fanatic hey, never did that. Yeah, I mean, you know, some say you know all you know, what's the old saying? You know, uh, you know, all publicity is good publicity, something along those lines. Sure, but yeah, people probably never forgot the uh, pharmaceutical company's name that 
got to champion King Kong as their mascot. Yeah. Although it's still, it's also what's really funny is there, you know, there's that scene in the movie where uh, I believe it was the, the Japanese Coast Guard, Japanese Navy, you know, they stop him and they say, you can't bring Kong into the country. Why can't I bring Kong into the country? He's considered smuggled goods. Yeah, it's like import controls, right? It's yeah. Get which, the Coast Guard and pull somebody over and, yeah, you can't take this giant monkey back into this country now. Yeah, which just makes me think that it shows that Mr. Taco didn't think everything through because, you know, he was so excited and impulsive that, you know, he you know he didn't stop to think, well, what happens if I actually get this monkey in there? There's a lot of red tape I'm going to have to go through. So I like to think that if he had managed to get Kong in there, he probably would have had to deal with Mitty just to get him, you know, into the country. There's also a connection to these films with the, the economic miracle, especially in the 60s. There's an idea in a lot of the Godzilla movies and kaiju films in general where you have all of this economic prosperity and all the stuff that was rebuilt being destroyed in the blink of an eye by a kaiju. And it's sort of like that reminder that, you know, a war or something else. A disaster. Yeah, it could just ruin everything that took so long to be created again and you could just end up back where you were. And it's like a, it's like a powerful reminder that there are still forces that can shake an economy down like a kaiju or a, an earthquake or a tsunami. Which is definitely reality for Japan, minus the kaiju, obviously. I think what this is showing is that, particularly with these 60s films, we're moving away from the deathly serious uh, themes of Gojira, and now we've moved into a point where people are more comfortable. You know, there's been economic growth. They feel safer, more secure. When that's the case, people are more willing to go out and have some fun. And that's what these movies are. You know, they are, they're fun movies when you get to the 60s. Or I should say they're more fun. They're not insubstantial. I mean, there's some great themes and all that to be mined in this. But there's also a greater emphasis on making them entertaining. And I think Sekizawa in particular, I think he really understood how to write these kinds of stories. I mean, the, he wrote this one too. And it's just, it has his name and his attitude all over it. And I think it's, these movies are, are indicative of the time. People were letting go more and, and it wasn't, life was not so dire and serious. I'm not sure if, if very many people in Japan thought that they would have gotten this far ahead in such a short period of time. And so I think that's why you see such a big difference between these, these 50s kaiju films and the 60s kaiju films. I'm pretty sure they they didn't. There were a lot of doubters about whether or not this booming economy that Japan was having could be sustained. I want to say, I mean, it's not unfounded. I can understand not wanting to get your hopes up too much, especially after coming out of the period of history that Japan was. But in the end, the optimists were proven right, and Japan emerged you know, from this dark period, an even stronger nation. Do you think if the Soviet Union had been able to take over Japan instead of the United States occupying and then leaving, do you think that they would have uh, had this kind of economic growth? It's kind of a stupid question, isn't it? The answer is most definitely no. Japan would have been ruined by the Soviet Union. And history has shown us that any country touched by the Soviet Union ends up in ruins until they break themselves away. Yeah, East Germany, I, I think 
I think uh, y'all know what we're talking about as far as just uh, the relocation of industrial capacity into the Russian part of the Soviet Union uh, and all the money, all the, everything. It was just pretty much taken. And Eastern Europe uh, is, uh, well, still recovering today because you don't recover from something like that very, very easily or very fast. No, you don't. Especially the particular brand of communism that came out of the Soviet Union, this level of economic productivity, I, I don't think would have even began, even in the slightest. The cool Japan that we know it would not exist either. And, and you know, we talk about Japan's massive amount of soft power in, in the form of its cultural influence. And I don't think we would have had cool Japan either. Well, that wraps up this episode, and I, I think we were able to relate just how how economics has a role in, in so much of, of what Japan was and, and still is today. Our next episode will be 1964's Mothra versus Godzilla. I'm looking forward to that one because it's just as much a classic as the original Gojira, I would say. We'd like to send a shout out to our patron, Kyoi Toshi, for pledging at the Kaiju Visionary level. Thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchant, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara! <laughs>